Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so great to be back with another interview with a woman who has an incredible professional career um, and a very interesting life story as well. Joining me in just a moment will be Gabrielle Fitzgerald. And Gabrielle is the founder and CEO of Panorama, which is a platform for um, social change. Um, And she has an incredible story. I'm really looking forward to having her on the show. As always, stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you news and information from their industries and their companies. Um, We would love for you to follow us on our new YouTube channel, and you can find it at W2W Media. So that's W, the number two, W Media. Um, And for all things Women to Watch, visit our website at womentowatch.net. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show, Gabrielle Fitzgerald. Hi, Sue. Thanks for having me. Hi, Gabrielle. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show, taking some time out of your busy schedule. Really happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Terrific. I... um, you know, I wanted to go back to the very beginning, as we always do on the show. And I thought I would start with um, asking you what you remember about those first seven years that you had in Connecticut before you actually moved with your family to Geneva, Switzerland. What kind of memories do you have of those first seven years? Well, um, actually, I was we moved around a bit. And so it was three years in Connecticut before we moved to Switzerland, but it was pretty formative because that's where I went to kindergarten and first grade. And the first thing that came to mind was that um, when I was in first grade, it was the bicentennial. And so that was um, 1976, the 200th anniversary of the country. And, you know, that was now a long time ago, but that was a big celebration then. And I remember doing lots of class projects related to the bicentennial. Um, And, you know, it's remarkable that we're approaching the uh, 250-year anniversary um, and not so far away. Yes. Tell me, what kind of school did you go to in your younger years? So I went to a public school. And this feels like such a throwback in that I would walk home for lunch every day. 
And I would sometimes get to sneak in my favorite show over lunch, The Brady Bunch. So I think pretty quintessential 70s childhood. And, you know, I don't know how many schools do that anymore where kids go home for lunch, but it really was truly a neighborhood school in a small town in Connecticut where it, in hindsight, it sounds very idyllic, but, um, you know, to me, that was just what I grew up with. Yeah. And tell me, um, so what was it that had your family move to Geneva? Yeah. So, um, my dad worked for a company and he had the opportunity to, work in their international headquarters, which was in Geneva. And it's funny to think about because in my career in recent years, I travel a lot and I might go to, I go to Geneva a lot coincidentally, and I might go for three days and then come home. And it was so different then because my family hadn't traveled outside the country. Um, we, were posted there for four years. We were allowed, you know, to call back to our, our grandparents once a month. Otherwise, we communicated by letters. Um, we went home for a summer family leave where we got to visit our extended family members. And it's just so different. I think it's probably hard for some of your um, audience to imagine that you know, there was no FaceTime, there was no text, there was no email. So you were truly removed from your environment. So it really felt like such a great adventure to go so far away. And there's some irony that all these years later, that's my daughter goes to school in Switzerland. Um, I go there regularly for work and the distance doesn't seem nearly as far as it did at the time. I, I can't imagine, you know, so let me ask you this. It, it must have been an adventure and you were with your family. So you felt safe and secure. Um, was there any trepidation, though, you know, moving, leaving what friends you had, you know, um, leaving what's familiar? I don't, that's not something I remember. I remember thinking of it as an adventure. And um, when I got there, I went to an international school, so that was very different from this idyllic um, local elementary school that I described a few minutes ago. Um, I was in a classroom with kids from all over the world, and I just loved being exposed to so many different types of people and languages and different experiences. And of course, when I was seven, I wasn't thinking this, but I do really think that was quite a formative experience for me um, because it really just exposed me to so that the world is a big place. People bring so many different skills and experiences and backgrounds. And I do think that really inadvertently set the scene for my career. What would you say, Gabrielle, if I were to ask, what I think is so cool about that experience, you you are meeting people, you know, young people from all around the world and seeing all those different cultures and perhaps languages and styles, et cetera. What did you learn is a commonality among people? So, you know, while there are differences, we're certainly the same as humans. And, and what would you say that is? Well, I think to be exposed to that at such a young age where, you know, my best friends, as I'm thinking about them, were from Uruguay and Brazil and uh, Ethiopia. 
you sort of don't see the the country, the national lines or different continents because you're just a kid and you're just playing and having fun and then you're they're your friend. And um, it's I think it's a really healthy approach because you're really not seeing differences. You're just thinking of this person likes to play this game. And so therefore I, I like them very simplistic. I was seven years old. <laughs> yes. Yes. So tell me, what did you miss the most when you came back? You had to leave there, you, you know, fell in love and, and had a wonderful experience and then you had to move back. What, what did you miss the most? Well, again, it had been this really positive experience because not only did I go to an international school, uh, Geneva, Switzerland is so centrally located that it's really easy to travel to new places and just have so many different experiences on a regular basis. Um, and then I came back and it was a bit of a jolt to be um, at the end of elementary school. I came back to start sixth grade and then into a junior high. And this is now, you know, the, pretty much the same area where I'd been earlier, but uh, the end of elementary school and junior high is a little bit less of an idyllic time. And it was quite a jolt to come back into that. And, um, you know, there are different types of kids, but maybe in a, a less positive way, uh, kids that were having a bit of a harder time and being introduced to drug use. That was something I hadn't uh, experienced in Switzerland. So mm. it was a bit of a, a shock to the system to come back into that. How about, um, we talk on the show a lot about confidence and self-esteem as, as young girls, you know, and women growing up. Um, where were you with that? You know, did, again, that experience kind of help boost your confidence because it was something that your peers did not have? Um, I think that um, I felt a little bit like the odd person out uh, because, first of all, Sadly, most of my young peers had not heard of Switzerland. There was a lot of confusion. Were you in Sweden or Switzerland? Um, and so I felt, you know, like I had to really get acclimated to a pretty new environment. In a way, I remember the re <laughs> coming back to the U.S. as being harder than going to Switzerland. And that could also be the age, sixth and seventh grade, yeah. isn't that? It's a tough age for everyone. Um but it was uh, it was really an adjustment. Yeah. Um, so when did you decide or start to form your sense of this is what I want to be when I grow up? This is the kind of work I want to be involved in. So you you went to American, I believe, and, and majored in political science. I did. Yep. Yeah. So um, I think I went into college being really interested in journalism. And then being in college in Washington, D.C. and being exposed to such a, you know, so many of our professors were adjunct professors who worked day to day on Capitol Hill or in political consulting, just really being exposed to that. And then having internships on Capitol Hill and uh, with some of the professors uh, really turned my interest to uh, political science. And American University has some really great uh, classes. They call it Campaign Management Institute, where you're really uh, in the role of a campaign manager for a 
you know, they take real statistics and real poll numbers from a candidate and then ask you to develop your strategies and a campaign around them. And I just remember really loving that and being really energized. And when I started, I was um, majoring only in communications and decided to double major in political science and communications because of all that exposure. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful combination to have. I mean, you know, from a skills standpoint, um, was was American a good fit for you? It was. Um, it was, again, a lot of diverse students. There's quite a big or at the time there was a lot of international students. And it was also really pulled in a student population from every country. I'm sorry, every state uh, in the country. And so. I did really enjoy going to school in a city and being exposed to different types of people again. Um, what was your very first job out of college or did you go right to um, graduate school? Well, it's actually relates to that campaign management institute. So I had met one of the professors who was teaching one of the classes and I had an internship and I was really fortunate that the internship turned into a full-time job. At the time I was graduating, um, we were coming out of a recession. And so I think I was the only one of my college roommates that had a job upon graduation. So I felt really fortunate to have a job and with a salary of $16,000 a year, I felt very lucky. That's a lot um, back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what year was that? 1991. 91, okay. Yeah. And go ahead. Well, so what was interesting, so I worked uh, with this firm for about six months, and we were working on a set of elections in New Jersey, and it was a Democratic consulting firm, and all of the candidates that the firm was working for lost. And so they were going to be in for a hard year. So they had to lay me off after the election, which, you know, was disappointing because I, again, felt very fortunate to have a job. But it turned out this is, you know, a classic blessing in disguise, mm -hmm. because as I started to look at other campaigns and other opportunities, uh, the presidential campaign was about to kick off. And so that opportunity really opened me up to so many things that followed in my career. Uh, I got a job on the Clinton campaign. So this was um, Bill Clinton for president. When I started working for him, he had 6% national name recognition. I went up to work for him in New Hampshire, uh, when, you know, the first in the nation primary state. And it was such an experience. Um, I could, I could talk about that for a long time. So I'll let you ask me what, where you want to go with that. Well, as I, you know, in doing my homework, and, and that's one of the many roles you've had, um, you were a speechwriter. Am I right? Or were there multiple? I, it led to a, a role down the road as a speechwriter at the White House. So in New Hampshire, I was what they call a field staff. And you literally are going around knocking on doors, um, trying to convince people to vote for your candidate and to date myself yet again, we literally had index cards with everyone's name and whether they were a likely voter, committed voter, or if they were not interested, we'd kind of put them put that stack of cards over to the side. Yeah. So 
when I think of politics today, it's 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 certainly different. The environment, the culture, the the knowledge that people have of politics and how it works and all of that from the time you were there, what, what comes to mind to you as the biggest change? It's kind of a big well, question. Yeah. One of the biggest changes about that experience was that I moved to New Hampshire on January 1st and the primary was February 18th. And that was very standard. It wasn't like the Clinton campaign was behind. They had had a very small team there since October. Fast forward to today, um, I'm quite sure that the campaigns that will be taking place next year, they've had people on the ground for a year, if not more, in advance of the primary. So the time horizon, the money spent, uh, the time spent, it's really expanded uh, and it's quite different where they really were injecting staff six weeks before this very important primary. Okay. Um, how about the, just the culture in general? You know, what do you recognize as the biggest difference? Um, and, and I think there's always, um, there's what media puts out, which can be only a part of a story. Um, and then there's what really happens behind the scenes. So as someone who has been at the White House, um, I'm always interested to know what what is it that is a misconception, perhaps? And and what is the truth about what's happening from a communication standpoint between people that work there, candidates, et cetera? Well, a couple of things. So first of all, um, you know, when I was working in the White House for President Clinton, I was quite young and there was actually a reputation that, oh, the Clinton White House is filled with all these young people. Um, I don't think it was actually really any different than probably any other administration. But what I do remember is people were really there for the right reason because they cared and they wanted to help move the country forward. So I think that's probably a, a difference in public opinion. I think there's a lot of uh, criticism of people that work in politics, but certainly in the era that I was in Washington, everyone was there because they really wanted to push forward a, a positive agenda to help people in the country. So that's one misconception. I think another misconception, um, and I'll just from my perspective as a speechwriter, is oftentimes there's a perception that a speech is written, a, a policy is decided, a speech is written, and the leader gives the speech. Well, in that administration, that was not the case at all. A lot of times, policy decisions were being made as the speech was being written. And so being in speech writing became a really interesting bird's eye view into what was happening uh, in the White House writ large as different um, you know, teams were arguing for different priorities in any given speech. And the annual State of the Union is such a good example because everyone wants their issue or their initiative uh, to be recognized in the State of the Union. So there's a lot of um, input that is being suggested for the, the State of the Union. So, uh, Gabrielle, in your role as a speechwriter, I'm curious to know if, you know, you're writing a speech and then my guess is somebody is proofing it or reading it. Is that actually the president? Are you having back and forth with him or does it go through an intermediate? Yeah. 
Well, there was a head of the speechwriting office who, of course, reviewed everything that went to the president. And depending on the priority of the speech, very often President Clinton would get involved in, I can remember his handwritten notes and then the speechwriter would have to go back and kind of make the edits. And it was very, for the big speeches, it was a real back and forth, uh, you know, in the moments leading up to the speech. Now, as the junior person on the team, I was usually writing some of the less consequential speeches. So they were probably getting less edits, you know, the, the turkey pardoning, the welcoming, the teams to the White House that won the Super Bowl or the NBA championships. So um, those didn't require quite as many edits. Gotcha. Okay. Um, listen, we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how you landed your position with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Stay with us for um, a beautiful spot from one of our partners, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And we will be back with Gabrielle Fitzgerald. We are CHOP. And we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first-of-its-kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center. We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science one of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma, and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. These challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP.
Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia Stream. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm speaking this week with Gabrielle Fitzgerald. And Gabrielle is the founder and CEO of Panorama, um, which is a wonderful platform um, that really brings together change makers and supports and provides resources for um, philanthropic uh, social change, all, all the good stuff the world needs. And um, just before the break, I mentioned I you know, was curious how you landed your position with the Gates Foundation, which obviously is one of the most enormous organizations globally for um, social change. Yeah, so um, we talked about my time in the White House. Uh, after the White House, I went to work for the U.S. Agency for International Development, and I spent five years there working on global issues like HIV-AIDS. And this was the time where there was an emerging understanding of the growing threat that the world was facing from HIV-AIDS. So I was very deeply involved in that, um, but had been there five years and felt like I was maybe ready for a new challenge and started to look around. And the Gates Foundation was quite new at the time. And so it was very interesting. And I was interested to learn more. And they had a very small Washington, D.C. office, which was where I was living at the time. And I went for what was an informational interview. But then they said, oh, we're going to have a job open in Seattle in the weeks ahead. Are you interested? Might you be interested in moving to Seattle to pursue this job? And I said, oh, sure, I'd love to. And in my mind, I'm thinking there's no way I'm moving to Seattle. I'm very settled in Washington, D.C. I'm very happy. But fast forward, they sent me the job description and I felt like it was the perfect job and decided to figure out how I could move across the country. And I thought I'd be here for two years, uh, but now we're approaching two decades and you can see the Space Needle behind me, um, which is Seattle's icon, and uh, I'm still here. So the role that I was recruited to that was directly related to the work I'd been doing at the US Agency for International Development was uh, what we called issue advocacy. So working on diseases that were really not garnering the public attention they needed, like malaria, like tuberculosis. And I was hired to try and raise attention, um, funding partners for uh, to focus on these disease areas. And at the time, the Gates Foundation, and still is today, was investing in new drugs, vaccines, 
diagnostics for those disease areas, but recognized that unless people understood how large the burden of TB or malaria was, no one would be interested in investing in making sure people got those vaccines or drugs. And so it was a real change for the Gates Foundation at the time. They had only previously had doctors and scientists and recognizing that, you know, the classic phrase, if you build it, they will come, was not going to be enough. You needed to actually make sure governments were willing to procure the new uh, treatment or, um, there was public interest in getting a new vaccine or drug. So um, it was a, a sort of logical next step after what I'd been working on at USAID. That must have been quite a challenge. You know, that that was a challenging position. What was the most difficult part for you? Well, I think one of the things that was most difficult was that when you see the statistics and you understand the numbers about the people impacted and I'll use TB and malaria because those are the first uh, initiatives I worked at the Gates Foundation. It was shocking and appalling. And I kept asking myself, why hasn't anyone been focusing on this? And um, so it was challenging, but I like a challenge. And, you know, the, we had a lot of resources through the Gates Foundation to think expansively about how we could change the way um, the world thought about and prioritized malaria or TB, for example. So was it during those years that you started to think about um, an organization like Panorama and how it could solve a lot of the issues that take place when it comes to philanthropic endeavors? Um, well, so I spent 10 years at the Gates Foundation, and over the time that I was there, I expanded my portfolio to run a department that we had called Program Advocacy. And so I was working on all the global issues the Gates Foundation cared about. And I definitely didn't have the idea for Panorama at the time, but what I did see repeatedly were some um, elements that became a very central tenants to what we do at Panorama. So first of all, really big challenges in the world cannot be solved by an individual, no matter how much money they have. Uh, every big challenge needs to be done in partnership. And oftentimes to bring people together in partnership, you need someone who is neutral, who is not trying to themselves get money. I'll stay on malaria for, for my example. Uh, get money for malaria, but is really focused on, okay, if I'm trying to move this whole agenda forward, what do we need to do? And how do we support all the groups that are working in this area to help them all move forward simultaneously, as opposed to creating competition among any groups? And this is, I'm using malaria as an example, but this is really true across all the social change issues I've come across in my career. And what has been the most joyful part of the work that you did? What, what, you know, is it that kept you there for 10 years? Well, uh, there was so much, obviously it was 10 years, but I think being able to see the really positive impact of some of our work. So we, um, we saw huge public sector investments in malaria. Um, we saw for a number of years, the numbers of malaria cases worldwide decreasing. 
Of course, unfortunately, during COVID, those numbers increased again. Um, but it really, I think if I were to sum up one um, macro takeaway, I would say that I really saw that with investment of dollars and the will to get things done, you can really make change happen. And that's very inspiring and energizing to me. And I've been able to bring that into my work at Panorama. So let's talk about Panorama. Um, and, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage to start something new um, on a massive scale like this. So um, I'm always interested, in, you know, you're thinking about it and, and, you know, tell me the moment you decided and who was the first person you told. Um, well, I remember that very clearly because um, I had decided I was going to do a job search to really spend time thinking about what the next step for me was going to be. And I was approaching it very conventionally, um, doing interviews for jobs that were posted, lots of informational interviews, circling back to colleagues and mentors, and just really trying to think about what the next step would be for me. And, and I assumed was, it and was, was that 2017? Um, nope, was, a little bit earlier, uh, 2016. Okay. And I was really focused on finding, I had worked for the Gates Foundation, I had worked for Paul Allen's foundation, I assumed I would find another job in a large philanthropy or in a global health organization. And that's what I was looking for. But as um, I had all of these interviews and went through the process, I really realized that I felt that my skills could best be applied to creating this neutral platform that we've just been talking about and working across multiple issues. Well, I'd spend, um, you know, the past, decade working primarily on global health. I'd also had the opportunity to work on other issues the Gates Foundation was involved in, like agriculture, uh, financial services. Earlier in my career, I'd worked on refugees, or obviously in the White House, I worked on many domestic issues. And the commonalities of how change happens are similar across many issues. And while I'm passionate about many of them, I really see myself as a generalist and not an expert in one, one particular area. My expertise is in how you make change happen. And I really had a bit of an aha moment where I realized that that could be the basis for an organization that I could start, which ultimately became Panorama, um, based on the fact that I saw a gap in the marketplace that I did not see organizations that were providing services to help accelerate the pace of change, whether you're a philanthropist, a nonprofit leader, an academic institution. One of our uh, core principles is this, we believe change can start from anywhere, and we want to support those leaders in helping them move as fast as they can, uh, move through roadblocks, not reinvent the wheel, not repeat mistakes that others have made. And we've seen um, that that has been a, a gap that wasn't there and that we've been able to fill. So let's talk, there's three entities, I believe, right, um, within Panorama, global strategy and action. Can you describe briefly what they are and, and how it works? Sure. Um, so Panorama, I describe as an umbrella name for all of the work that we do. And 
then there's three different legal entities and it's designed to sort of use each entity as it's designed for. So Panorama Global is a nonprofit organization. So we receive grants and make grants. We also host uh, nonprofit initiatives. There's something called fiscal sponsorship, which allows us to do that. If you wanted to start a new nonprofit initiative, but you didn't want to build up the whole infrastructure that it takes to get that charitable registration, we support with that. So those are the types of things we do in our nonprofit arm. Panorama Strategy is our for-profit consulting arm. And again, working with leaders from wherever they come, whether it's the corporate sector, philanthropic sector, we write strategies for them. We help run secretariats. We will provide any back-end support to help them make change happen. And we very deliberately set up a for-profit arm so that any profit made could be put back into the nonprofit and be given away from there. And then the third arm is Panorama Action, which is uh, an advocacy organization um, in, you know, this is very in the weeds, but uh, the U.S. tax law allows you to do certain things with different types of organizations. And this is one that allows you to work directly with government leaders to um, get things done. And this is the smallest of our three entities, uh, and we want to use it sparingly, but we want it to be a tool in the toolkit because obviously partnering directly with government officials is often essential to making change happen. So tell me how when most, so your, I'll say your clients are often, and or most of the time, um, people that have limited funds. So how do they pay for the services that you're providing? What is the business model, I guess? Well, we have a lot of different business models because there's different entities. So sometimes it's a direct fee for service. Sometimes um, you know, we enable people to raise money a lot of times because if you don't have a charitable status, sometimes that disqualifies you from raising any money. So, um, there can be a very small fee based on money that has been raised. So we work with the individual partners to develop a fee structure that makes sense for them uh, based on the amount of services we're providing. Okay. Um, I'm curious when I think, look over your career um, and, and your life, you, you have, <laughs> excuse me, um, moved, you know, across several roles. And I'm curious what keeps you moving? What is it that, you know, propels you to, okay, it's time now to move to something new? Well, I think, um, you know, it's a very personal journey for every individual. And I think there's been different reasons for changes at different times. Um, I had a, a former boss who I greatly respected who said he was five years in every job and then he moved on. And um, I haven't set that pattern for myself. It's as long as I can feel like I'm still doing my job, making the change um, that keeps me somewhere. And when I feel like I've maxed out on that, then it's time to think about what's next. So when you look at where you are now with Panorama, do you feel as though this is where I've always been meant to be? <laughs> it's such a good question that um, as I'm in the seventh year of this startup, something I'm thinking a lot about. 
I know that there's a tendency for founders to sometimes feel they need to be there forever and that the organization would fall apart without them. I'm definitely not a believer in that, but I am assessing what makes most sense for me and to keep being able to have the change uh, on the issues that I'm working on. Um, you're also a mother. So there's this whole other part of your life when you're yes, not there is. running. Yes, um, of two daughters. And I'm curious when you look, gosh, you know, you've been involved in and been working towards helping to solve some of the world's greatest issues. And you have these two daughters. And if you could change one thing for them as you look to their future, what would that be? Well, it touches on an issue you asked about earlier, which is self-confidence. That has always been my greatest wish for my daughters, that they have self-confidence, that they believe in themselves. And that's going to, you asked about propelling you forward. I think that's one of the best attributes you can have to help propelling your, propel yourself forward through any challenging time or situation. And what are you seeing in them as far as their own aspirations and, and, and where they're headed? Well, anyone who's a parent will know how fun it is to watch that and to see some areas where you've had influence and some areas where they're completely different. Um, one thing that's kind of fun is that I mentioned earlier, my older daughter's in college and she's ended up in Switzerland having nothing to do with me, just found a school that was the right fit for her. And my younger daughter um, elected, found a study abroad program that she was really excited to do in Jordan. So uh, people hear those stories and they say, wow, you've definitely influenced them. And I don't know if it was deliberate or by osmosis, but I definitely, they definitely have a love of travel. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's very often it's just you're living by example. Your your lesson is by the life that you are living. And I always think it's wonderful when um, girls, young women are um, eager to go explore outside of, you know, where it's comfortable. D did you have conversations with them, you know, when we talk about just the importance of having more women in positions of leadership. Do you talk to them about that or do you think you just are leading by example? I think a bit of both. I mean, they've seen the work for, um, you know, they've been part of it for all these years. And uh, I think they've just sort of, I'd say, gained a lot of knowledge by osmosis, by watching me, by seeing the work that I'm doing. And you know, this belief that every individual can be part of change, I think is something they see every day from me. Yeah. One last question. Um, we're almost at the end. Um, I was reading an article, I, I can't recall where it was, and you were actually being interviewed for something, and you talked about the importance of putting ego aside. Um, and I'd love for you to just talk what that meant, what that means to you and, and something you can leave our, our viewers with when it comes to that topic. Well, you know, there's, we see a lot of leaders today who do not do that. And I think when you work on social change issues and you're really committed to focusing on the change, you really need to think about what role you can play and that. A lot of things that we do at Panorama are 
leading from behind or um, what we sometimes call the unsexy middle. And I believe that if I was very ego driven, I wouldn't recognize the need for those very core essential services that need to happen, but may not be glamorous and may not be high profile, but they're ultimately going to support more leaders in getting change done than if I was focused on what can I do if I put myself in a public facing position. Right, exactly. Well, I hope more people follow your example. Um, I think more work will get done. And I thank you so much, Gab- uh, Gabrielle, for joining me today. And I wish you continued success. Thank you, Sue. Really delighted to have a chance to speak with you. Uh, stay with us, and I'll be back to close out the show. You're going to see um, a beautiful spot from another partner and sponsor, Visit Philly. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Philly Watch. I can't say this enough. There's so much to see and do in Philly, but my favorite thing has got to be eating. 100%. Yeah, and now with all of the amazing weather and all of the outdoor dining options that we have, it's all I'm going to do all summer. Okay, same, because it's been so nice out, and you don't have to tell me twice, because eating and drinking is literally my favorite thing to also do, which, now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably why we click so fast in the beginning. Oh, it absolutely is. (laughs) And guess what? Now we have three new James Beard award-winning restaurants. We want to give a huge shout-out and congratulations to Ellen Yin, who we actually had on a few weeks ago for winning Best Restaurateur, Chad and Hannah Williams from Friday, Saturday, Sunday for winning Best Restaurant, and of course, Chef Knopf from Kalia for winning Best Chef Mid-Atlantic. I'm just so proud of our culinary scene. It is booming and sorry, New York, but I'm going to have to say that Philly is the food capital of the East Coast. Oh, it absolutely is. I second that. No, I've been waiting to go to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and now I have even more of a reason to go. Definitely. you know what? That's not all. Okay. Philly didn't just win three JBF awards. We won four. All right, now we're just flexing. I mean, only Philly can. Toby Maloney, the resident bartender at Hopsing Laundromat in Chinatown, also won an award for his new cocktail book. Okay, which means me and you probably have to go there. And that makes me feel like we need to do a little date night in Chinatown. Absolutely. Okay, we could do Ocean Harbor and get dim sum. Mm -hmm. Or what's that Cantonese place you like? Thai Lakes. It's my favorite. Okay, we could go there. Or Terracawa for ramen. All right, we need to start planning this immediately. (laughs) Go to visitphilly.com to check out all of the James Beard affiliated restaurants. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, A big thank you, as always, to Helm Creative for producing the show and to our watch team of corporate partners. Next week, stay tuned for my interview with Kelsey Trainer. She is an attorney. Um, And for all things Women to Watch, don't forget to visit our website at womentowatch.net. Have a great week, everyone. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, For 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start. Supporting families as they grow. 
and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are and here we grow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.